Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. We're grateful to have as our guest tonight, Micah Gunn. I say tonight because it's tonight in our studio <laughs> right here at our home, at The Cubic Home. I don't do too many podcasts with person in person. Many of them are online, but this one here is in our home, and we're very grateful to have Micah Gunn, who is visiting with us. Micah Gunn is a member in the Columbus, Ohio church. His father is an elder. I got to know him as an ABC student, him and his sister as well. And he has his own podcast. Micah has a podcast that is called Truth Be Told. And I have really appreciated Micah because of the things that he has on his podcast, but also that he helped me get my own podcast going here. It's been just very wonderful to be able to uh, have the basic things set up here by him to help me have this podcast. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Been wanting to do this for a while, so it's great to finally be here. Well, we're so thankful, Micah. Micah Gunn, thank you. So Micah does Micah does quite a few things. He's also a musician. I maybe am stretching it a little bit to say he's a theologian. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were stretching it on musician, but... <laughs> well, he's quite a musician. He's just a, a person who really makes a lot of people happy with the music that he does. But he also likes to study the Bible and has created a certain niche of study that's been one that we will be talking about this this evening. He has, like I said, he has a podcast by the name of Truth Be Told. Some of the ideas that he's had uh, on his podcast, some of the titles, just to give you an idea of the kind of things that he does, is how do we, res how do we respond to new ideas, learning from our mistakes, finding yourself in Bible prophecy. But also he has been a courageous and brave person who has been able to reach out to noted people who are specialists in their field and be able to snag them for podcasts. And I have really just uh, admired him for that. He did a interview with Dr. Peter Gurry on textual criticism. This is not an interview, I believe, but with Barna, the state of faith in America and what we can do about it. Did you talk to somebody from them? Yeah, yeah. Um, I talked with um, one of the directors there and they just kind of gave me some insight on their organization and their insight as to why things are progressing the way they are as far as the religious center of America at this moment. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was a really nice interview. I enjoyed speaking with them a lot. Well, I, I admired that I'm actually trying to do the same things myself and I'm somewhat older than Micah, but he's been able to snag some very good interviews. One interview that I have found him uh, doing was just a real knockout and a classic. He interviewed cold case detective J. Warner Wallace, and he spoke about, spoke about cold case Christianity. First of all, I want to say that it's just been an honor to be able to talk to someone about the subject of apologetics and that's what we'll be talking about. I'll just tell you that that's going to be the subject matter, what we have. And you might say, what in the world is apologetics, especially if it relates to Christianity and to religious belief? But it's a very simple word. I'm going to have Micah tell us about it because that's what he has focused on. He's held meetings with people where they've studied things from the apologetic point of uh, reference. He'll talk about how the word apologetics is used in the Bible. 
apologetics in the dictionary is reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something. Something of a theory that's of either religious or other theories also can be included, not just only religion. And when I first heard the word apologetics, it sounds like, I'm sorry, no, apologize, <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it kind of a weak position? Micah, let's just start talking about apologetics mm -hmm. to somebody who has no idea what this word means. Might even be afraid of it. It might even not even like it. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, some, you know, anything unfamiliar to us is something that we tend to steer away from. And then some that are familiar with apologetics actually steer away from it. Um, I think from maybe a misunderstanding of what it is. Um, but basically, it's just a discipline of study, just like theology would be. Apologetics is its own type of study um, dealing with the defense of theology. So whatever you believe about God, how do you defend that belief based on scripture or extra biblical resources, uh, whether that be history or science? And so uh, it's it's really not as terrifying as people make it out to be. It's really just giving a reasonable argument. And when I say argument, I don't mean fighting somebody, but showing that what you believe or the thing that you're you're presenting as a statement of fact, why is that thing true? And it comes from 1 Peter 3.15, which um, that's where we get the word apologetics. It comes from the Greek word apologia. And in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So that word defense, often it's translated give an answer. And that is the Greek word apologia. So it's not that you're defensive. It's not that you're backing down from a position it's actually a position of strength and, and you're you're just giving reasoned argumentation for the things that you claim. And so people who are those who do this type of thing are apologists. Yes. And so in other words, they're the ones who can explain. Maybe that would be a stronger word as a synonym, right? Yeah, I, th I think that works. And, and um, I think something that kind of ends up happening in this whole world of theology and apologetics, you mentioned earlier that you maybe a stretch to call me a theologian. I, I agree with that on on the broad scale sense, but really, a theologian is just someone who studies theology or studies belief about God, What's which studies God exactly. Yeah. yeah. So everyone really that claims Christianity should at some level be a theologian, whether they're a famous YouTube star for it or or what have you. We should all be theologians, and in the same way, I believe we should all be apologists, even though we not, might not major in it in college, we might not you know, use it every single day of our lives, we may, may not make it our whole life's purpose to be apologists, but we should all be looking to Scripture to say, what do we believe? That's the theology part. And then how can we defend what we believe as true? So in, in a way, we should all be apologists, studying mm -hmm. apologetics, at least to some degree. So what more can you say about the particular course of study or methodology of apologetics? Uh, so so basically, this is actually a really good segue into, I guess, defending apologetics itself. So giving an apologetic point for apologetics, because the main thing that apologetics kind of dabbles in is logic and reason. And to some, they want to say that, well, apologetics is kind of more Greek thinking. It's, it's more um, based in your human reasoning. And to some extent that, that that is true, but I would just say that, well, God gave us the ability to think and reason. It's part of, you know, in Genesis when it says he gave us or um, he created man in his image. That's part of it, our ability to think, our ability to reason. So 
to not use that faculty when he's given it to us just seems um, like having a hammer to hit a nail and using a screwdriver instead. You know, he gave us such a fantastic tool like reasoning, like logic to be able to present arguments to people again, not to fight them on it, but just to show that what we believe is, is not some mystic, you know, mumbo jumbo. Like there, there's actual basis in fact for the things that we believe. For example, um, if you were to argue that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, which is a pillar of Christianity, I might be talking to somebody who doesn't have a background in Christianity and immediately they're going to reject that claim. And so I would go through an, an, a few apologetic points with them to say, well, okay, historically, I can verify that this happened. Based on textual evidence, I can verify this happened. Based on the plausibility of um, all the things that could have happened. Mm -hmm. So what did the disciples actually see? These, All of these reasons build up my case. And that's actually what I talked with uh, Detective Jane Warner Wallace about was kind of building up a credible case for various points of our faith in Christianity. But how do you do that? I think some people want to say, well, I just want one good fact that kind of just knocks it all out of the park and makes it absolutely undeniable to people. And there really isn't one. Um, I think the Bible is such a, you know, line upon line and precept on precept. I think we're supposed to be looking deeper into the subject and realizing that it might not be, we don't have visual evidence that Christ was raised from the dead, but we have a lot of fantastic textual evidence that Christ did. We have a lot of extra biblical historical evidence that Christ did. And putting this all together, you build this cumulative case for this subject of the resurrection. But you can do this with any belief you have. So basically, it's just showing that you have a sound mind and then defending a point of your belief. Now, Mike, I know that the story about Jesus Christ and him being here on the earth is the central part of our beliefs. He mm -hmm. was here on the earth. He did what he said he would, and it would be to die for our sins and to ultimately, through his resurrection, give us eternal life. How would you go about proving this, if I could use the word prove, whatever that would be? Sure. And what some things can you bring from your J. Warner Wallace interview that could enlighten us, that could help us to become excited about explaining and be able to defend our beliefs. Sure, yeah. So um, that is a really good one because the existence, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ are monumental to the Christian faith. And you could really take each one of those and defend it. So let's say someone made the claim, which is not a very good claim because most people already believe that Jesus Christ was a real person that did exist in history. And there's a lot of evidence to support that claim. So very few would have trouble believing that. But let's say you did. Um, let's say you're up against somebody that decided to take issue with the fact that you wanted to say that Jesus Christ really did live. Well, you could go through, um, I would personally go through the historical evidence. There's a lot of historical accounts, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, that show that Jesus Christ was a real man, and, and not just was a real man, but was a real man who made certain claims about himself, namely that he was the Son of God. And that can be historically corroborated better than most of the historical figures we accept without even a second thought. So um, Alexander the Great, for example, we have way less manuscript evidence for Alexander the Great's existence than we do Jesus Christ's mm -hmm. existence. It's this kind of thing that I think people will get excited about saying, we have all these evidence, we have so many manuscripts, we have so many that go, that go back a long ways. Mm -hmm. And 
show this type of thing. They're more than Homer and Iliad. Yes. <laughs> Some yeah. of these other writings of the past. And here we have all this evidence that's been so carefully preserved over the years. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, so I think it, it's really interesting because while the fact that we have more textual evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ as a real living person, um, more so than someone like Alexander the Great or or Homer's works even, while that doesn't prove the existence of Jesus Christ, it does give it more plausibility than some of these other people that we just take for granted as, of course, they were historical figures. And so the beauty of this is that for me, I don't really need apologetics. You know, I don't need to be proved. Uh, it doesn't need proven to me that Christ existed. I believe that. I've already come to that conclusion mm -hmm. myself. And so I don't need to defend it constantly in my own head. It's more so for other people. But a person that would come back and say, well, you haven't actually proved Christ's existence. You just are proving that we have a lot of manuscript evidence about him. And I would say, you're right. That's 100% true. I cannot make the decision for you to go from disbelief into belief. That is between you and God. But if you're going to deny the existence of Christ based on manuscript evidence, then you have a lot of issue because you really then have to deny some of the people we have far less manuscript evidence for. So if you'd like to throw Jesus Christ out and say, well, we don't need to believe in him just because manuscripts say he existed, I would say, well, who else do we not have to believe in? Because manuscripts are the, really the only thing we have that say that they existed. And so I, I think it's um, it's at least an interesting point that will give people pause. And sometimes that's all you can do. You might not be able to get a person to go from, like I said, disbelief into belief. But you might, um, the phrase I, I've heard before and that I really like is, you might put a pebble in their shoe that they just have to walk on for a while and say, hmm, that doesn't feel right. And then later they have to reconcile that that understanding. And that could lead to belief later. Well, one thing too, we've done a few podcasts here on the subject of truth. Mm-hmm and you know what is true and one person can look at whatever this evidence is and come up with one perception of truth and one can take a look at the same thing the same object or same bit of news and come up with a different conclusion and a lot of it gets to faith and bias and, uh, and other issues that had at that surround that mm -hmm. there comes a point at which you are given evidence i've heard this now in conferences dealing with religious subjects you have various scholars in different rooms that give their presentations. And one scholar may give this much veracity to scripture, another one gives none, just mm -hmm. saying these are just interesting fragments of, of uh, history that yeah. have, have shown up. And others will be on the side where I'm at, this is the inerrant word of God. I already have that particular perspective, that mm -hmm. bias, that if it's there, that in the beginning, you know, there was God and he created the heavens mm -hmm. and the earth. That is exactly what I believe. In the beginning, you know, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Mm -hmm. I believe that. It's difficult to convince somebody who is biased against it in that way. But for most people, I think that as people search, I know that when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I wanted to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of a clear slate, a tabula rasa <laughs> of a clean slate. Please show me what the truth is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it can be hard to convince people. And I think that's a misconception that people have about apologetics. They think that this discipline is something that is in the conversion business, or it, it's as if we're playing God and we're trying to um, use fancy words and reasoning to trick people into believing in the existence of God or the existence of Christ or the resurrection. 
And that's really not the case. All you, all apologetics is, is a tool that can be used. And, and you, you spoke to bias. Um, I recognize that I have a certain bias towards my faith. I, I grew up with it. It makes sense to me. But a lot of people don't come from the same background as I do. So apologetics is really about stripping away your bias. So you can do what the end of this verse says in 1 Peter 3.15 um, it's not just about giving a defense or giving an answer, but you're giving an answer or a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that speaks to how you are approaching the other person, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not about trying to trick them into believing something. It's not about trying to strong arm them into a belief by giving them facts that they must accept. Otherwise, they're lunatics. It's a, It's about using a tool that God has given us, which is evidence in the Bible and evidence in the world to prove the truths that I already believe. But you're stripping away your own bias to say, okay, if all we had was just the evidence in front of us, what conclusion makes the most sense? And when you do that, a lot of people end up, I think apologetics does have a really good track record for, I'll say, convincing people. Not not to say that they come into a full understanding of faith just from the from the outset, but that they can be led down a road of, um, I would say, knowledge to belief and then belief to faith and then faith to hope. Mm-hmm. And that's God working with a person. But apologetics can be a really valuable resource so that not only could we help to maybe show someone the reasonability of our faith who doesn't see it as reasonable, but also to defend it. In our, in our own minds, to those who might be listening to us have a discussion with someone else to say, hey, that guy really held his own, even though, you know, that might not be the person you're talking to. But if you can hold your own in, dis- in a discussion, and um, I think it, it really goes a long way in just validating not only our sanity as Christians, but um, the, the validity of our belief. Well, Micah, you know, as we are talking about doing these things and presenting evidence, don't you think that one of the strongest things that a person could do is just to be knowledgeable about what the scriptures themselves have to say? If you don't have that, you're just talking. Uh, we we're told you know, to go into all the world and you know, preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. You've got to know what preaching means. You've got to know what the kingdom of God is. You've got to know uh, what all those terms mean based upon what's in the scriptures. And the scriptures basically uh, reiterate what Christ spoke of and what he referred to. So in order to be an apologist, you have to be able to know the scriptures. Yes, absolutely. You cannot be an effective apologist if you're not an effective theologian. So if you're not studying what the Bible says, then what are you defending? And, and it even tells it in the verse, 1 Peter 3.15, that you are giving a reason for the hope that is in you. If you don't have any understanding of what that hope is, then you could talk till you're blue in the face, but you're not actually defending anything. You're just kind of talking in circles because you don't hold anything to be firm or to be evident. And so, yeah, I, that is, that can be missed a lot. People think, well, apologists, they're just people who, you know, they like to argue and they, they mm-hmm. go in circles. And that's that's not really the case. If you take the time to listen to some of the, the well-crafted arguments um, you realize that it comes from a place of truly believing something. And that belief is is grounded in scripture or, or should be anyways. I mean, obviously you could have apologists that are defending a belief in Islam, or you could have an apologist defending a belief in um, 
Christian science or any branch of any religion you want, strictly here I'm talking about Christian apologetics. When you're doing Christian apologetics, it has to be founded in an understanding of what that hope is. And that hope is the kingdom of God, the return of Jesus Christ, the ability to join in his family. And those are the things that when people have questions for me about what I believe, that's the thing that I need to be ready to give a defense about. And I need to do that from scripture and, and mm-hmm. utilizing all the resources I have, you know, even outside of scripture. But getting back to scripture, I just wanted to comment some about that because I was very fascinated by what scripture itself is. Mm-hmm. It's, a com- it's a compilation of books that were written over a 1400 year period by, you know, how many authors? It was 45 authors or whatever that uh, put it together. And they all spoke of the same thing. They all mm-hmm. pointed to one area. And it's just amazing how the scriptures dovetail. They begin with the Garden of Eden. They end with the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. I mean, who could put a script like that together today? <laughs> it's yeah. a major Hollywood movie. You know, it, it's it's amazing how the Bible has been you know, put together. And in the Old Testament alone, well, in the Old Testament, there are how many references to Christ that are undeniable? You, could, you couldn't make this stuff up. Endless, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he himself says that, right? And yeah. the whole Old Testament is about him. It points yeah. to him. Um, after his resurrection, he went to the disciples and it says he expounded to them the scripture. And even that, when people have an issue with apologetics, I say, you know, Christ himself did apologetics. He gave reasoned arguments and showed the disciples from scripture, here I am. I was written into the Bible years before I came around in a physical sense, you know, but he he truly was God. And when people had a hard time believing that, he gave them reason to believe, both through his miracles, both through his uh, expounding on scripture, and also the perfect life he led, I think is fantastic evidence for the fact that he was who he said he was. Maybe give us a step-by-step plan here. I don't put you on the spot, but I know that we all kind of know what what to do. Mm -hmm. Is how could I be able to create, if I could use the word cheat sheets, (laughs) about certain uh, basic Christian truths. Now about Jesus Christ, uh, where would you start if somebody's asking you some questions, perhaps some prickly questions Mm -hmm. where they are biased against him and are trying trying to trip you up? Um, would that be regarding like the life of Christ or the resurrection of Christ? Anything or? to do with Christ. Okay, so uh, let's let's go to resurrection. We've spoken on his life just a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, as for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think that a lot of skeptics or atheists will take issue with that because they don't believe in miracles in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So you almost have to go through this step-by-step process with them. Um, not only do they not believe in a God or they, they believe in there, there's a lack of evidence for God, but they they don't believe in the supernatural at all. You know, most skeptics today are, are naturalists, and that just means they don't believe in anything outside the natural world. So starting from that perspective, because it really does depend on who you're speaking with, um, that's a really good first step in apologetics is knowing your audience. So I'd like to start with going through a step-by-step of general apologetics, and then I'll go into a specific example of how to put that into practice. Um, So in general apologetics, the thing you're going to want to do is first know your audience. Who are you speaking to? Because this is going to inform you a lot about some of the issues that they have coming to the table. If I'm speaking about um, heaven and hell, for example, um, 
and I'm speaking to a Catholic, well, I, I know the biases that they're coming in with that I have to work around. And I, I know who I'm talking with so that I'm not talking past them and they're not talking past me. I know the issues they have with my belief and I know the reasons they have for theirs. And so if you know your audience, you're already a huge way into the into the discussion because you're going to meet them where they are rather than just talking over them and getting everyone flustered mm-hmm. and frustrated. So knowing your audience is the first thing. Um, after that, I would say you need to know the question. What's the thing that they are asking you about? And uh, this might seem simple because the question is something that, well, they just asked you, right? But you have to know what is beneath that question because sometimes people say things in a way that is trying to get an emotional response or they say things in a way that is a leading question or they might put red herrings in their question to throw you off. And so you have to really be able to strip away all of those things to say, what really is this person asking me? What is what is the information that they want that might actually lend them to think a little more critically about what I believe. So that's the second step. Know your audience first, then know the question. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is a defining of terms. Because so often in apologetics, if you start into a discussion with a person, but you're using different terms to describe the same thing or the same terms to describe two different things, you will never be on the same page. So just simply ask them, when you say this, what exactly do you mean? Right. And, and I think this goes a long way in disarming in a way because you're, you're showing them, hey, I actually care what you think and, and how you think. So in order to res- be respectful of you and your time, let's define our terms so we can actually have a good and fruitful discussion here. And a lot of times if, if you're speaking with someone who might be a little bit more antagonistic to you, this can catch them off guard because suddenly they've asked you some prickly questions but you've responded with kindness and patience and trying to seek understanding from where they're coming from. So if you can do those three things, Mm -hmm. then I think you're poised to get into the actual discussion itself. And from that point, all it is is being respectful of their beliefs while presenting yours with the best evidence you have. With having a relationship with them. Yes, yes, that is is key. And that's really what the first three things build up to. If you know who you're talking to, what they're asking and and why they're asking it and then I, I just think it goes a long way in getting a building a relationship with these people so that you're not just you're not just speaking past each other but you're not adding to the aggression you're actually diffusing the situation right it's it's answering a harsh word with kindness is, mm-hmm. is kind of what you do and you can make a lot of really good friends that way i have a lot of friends that believe dissimilarly to me but they appreciate how I approach a situation. And so we can discuss things all the time. And slowly but surely, they, I think they've come to understand a lot more about what I believe rather than just yelling at each other from the outset. And maybe even understanding why they're in that position that they're in. Yes. Or what is their background? Or what led them to that type of thing? I've seen some amazing conversions from a person who was atheistic just like from the stories of the God is Not Dead movie, mm-hmm. why the person was an atheist. His mother died when he was a child. He prayed to God and he said, God, heal her, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. So how could there be a God? So that person is living with that hurt. And you have to understand that. You have to work with that. You have to be able to appeal to moving from that point to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's really a lot of times what it is because I, I don't feel that 
I'm unreasonable or irrational to believe in Christianity or the truths of Christianity. Um, someone else believes that I am. But you'll notice that a lot of people don't want to get into apologetic discussions because they feel that it's just room to fight. It's just room to argue. And people get uncomfortable arguing. You know, there's not a lot of people who love confrontation. And those kinds of people mm. I personally try and stay away from. And sometimes I can admittedly be that person, but I try not to be as much <laughs> well, as Well, there's I some can. people who do love to pick a fight, though. <laughs> it, that is true, yes. But, but knowing why they want to pick a fight can mm. actually diffuse the fight before it happens. You brought mm. up a classic apologetic point, the problem of, of evil or pain or suffering. And C.S. Lewis talks to that all the time. I mean, he he went through some difficult times in his life. And, and I think all Christians have to ask the question, why is this happening to me? You know, even uh, Psalm 73, Asaph, when he says, why do the wicked prosper? Mm -hmm. Or Jeremiah asked that question in Jeremiah 12. That's a question that's been in the minds of very faithful people. And we have to answer that too. So knowing that a skeptic or an atheist or a naturalist is coming at Christianity with difficulty in embracing it because of pain they've experienced, that's a point that I can relate to that person on and say, hey, I've had pain too. I've had suffering too. I've had questions for God too. And that's okay. And from that point, again, it's another disarming of the situation mm -hmm. where you're you're treating them as people, not as an argument or not as, they're not, they're more than just the thing that they think. They are the reason why they think it as mm -hmm. well. Well, I know that uh, it's interesting with people who go through grief <clears throat> and, and trauma. For example, right now what's happening in Ukraine mm -hmm. is difficult. The war has been going on for a whole year and people are walking around in circles saying, what is this all about? And it's interesting that it's brought out two interesting, distinct classes of results mm -hmm. from the trauma that's gone on the suffering. The suffering is this, more than 100,000 people in Ukraine have, have died. Tens of thousands in some, some cities have, have died. Over 120,000 Russian soldiers have died. I mean, they're, they're people too. Why is this all going on? And it will continue. Mm -hmm. Well, it's brought out two different classes of people. One is, is that there is no God. Yeah, that's, that's the easiest position to take. And that's what happened in World War II. Mm -hmm. I talked to people who were immigrants in our community. Some were atheists because this couldn't be if there was a loving God. It's interesting that the other class of people, of people who became people of great faith <laughs> as a result of the same trauma, they looked to God. He, they looked to different ways in which they were preserved, the fact that they're still alive. And they've been able to have a place. They've been able to understand where they are in the stratum of uh, the progression of, of the human existence, mm -hmm. of what life is, what life will be, what the resurrection is, and what God's whole plan is. So that I found to be a very interesting thing. Yeah, it's, it's really a natural progression that those two divisions happen. Um, I think the reason that skeptics and Christians end up being so inflammatory when they speak is because they're people coming from the same backgrounds a lot of times, but reaching different conclusions. So it's almost like a white note and a black note on a piano played side by side. Mm -hmm. They're so close to each other, yet the sound it makes is discordant. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not saying that atheists are um, just a hair's breadth from Christianity or anything, but a lot of times they can be if they can reconcile the pain or the frustration or the confusion that they feel over some of our beliefs. Um, so if, if you want, we can go through, I mean, problem of pain or suffering is a really, really good one. 
um, just to go through a specific example of how to handle that apologetic. Let's do it. Okay. So let's say you are interacting with a person who finds themselves uh, skeptical with Christianity. And so this person approaches you antagonistically. They approach you and they're frustrated. They say, how could you believe in something like Christianity? How could you believe in a God that allows millions of people to suffer every year? How could you believe in a God that allows pain and torment of all these people crying out to him all the time? And as soon as I hear this, I know that this person is experiencing pain themselves, whether it's their own pain or empathetic pain for the rest of the world. And I know that I can relate to them on this because I also feel pain. I also can look at the world and say, you know, sigh and cry as, as God mm-hmm. says to do. And I can say, wow, I understand that this person doesn't understand God, but understands that something is wrong with the world. And I fully agree. Um, but I'm not trying to prove that the world is perfect or the world goes exactly how uh, God is forcing it to go, but that he's allowing it to go this way for a time. And so right off the bat, I'm knowing my audience because I'm learning a little bit about their background. I'm learning that they're coming from a place of pain or at least um, deferred pain, pain mm-hmm. that they experience from, from other people and witnessing their struggle. So I'm learning my audience. Then I might address their question. How could you believe in a God who allows these things? And to that, some of the best uh, the best apologetic points I've heard are from Dr. Frank Turek, who I also mm-hmm. interviewed on my podcast. Um, he is an incredible apologist, but he writes this book and it is called uh, Stealing from God. And he makes a great point that without God, you actually cannot have the concept of evil. Without good, you cannot have the concept of evil. Without pain, you cannot have the concept of pleasure. Because what you're saying is that there is an objective standard for what good is. And as soon as you say there's an objective standard, you have to ask, who creates that objective standard? Where does where does goodness even come from? And to a skeptic or a naturalist, they'll say, well, we all just kind of make it up. And I would say, that's impossible. We can't just make it up. We all have different ideas of what good is, right? Mm-hmm. It has to come from somewhere transcendental, somewhere above humanity. And to that, I point to God. So the very fact that someone can look and say, this is evil and this is good, shows that there is an objective standard for what good and evil actually is. And if there's an objective standard, it has to come from beyond humanity. And so already I've gotten to them, gotten them to a position where they have to deny some higher power, whether they want to call it God or want to believe in my God. Or they could just say, well, if there's a God, he must be evil then. But hey, at least we got them to a point of believing in God. So you can take steps after that. But that is probably how I'd handle that initially. And just take baby steps with them. I don't need to convince them of everything right away. But by using their own reasoning of saying, hey, you see the evil in the world, I see it too. The only reason, though, that I can know there's evil is because I know what good is. And good has to come from something beyond humans. Because otherwise, we're just making up good for ourselves. We really can't say what's good or bad because we're just creating it. It's just a social construct. And I, I reject that. And most people actually would. Well, I find this to be a very fascinating discussion because, well, I've heard parts of this. I haven't heard it quite put just this way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't, I can't say that I'm putting it better than mm-hmm. a lot of people do, but I'm, I'm giving it an honest effort. Well, I know that uh, we have this choice of good and evil. And I feel like the purpose of humanity is to be able to voluntarily make that choice. Mm-hmm. It's said that you can't love someone unless you also have the power not to love them. Yes, and exactly. So, and so 
if you if love was just programmed into us towards someone, it's not really our love. It's mm -hmm. it's a programmed love. Right. I know that when parents sometimes ask their <laughs> when I was when I was young, my my mom and dad said, "I think you should marry this girl. You should love her." <laughs> that that scared me. I I wouldn't want to do that because that was something yeah. that my parents thought that it might be good if I would marry this right. particular person. If only it were that easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, no, I want to be able to make that decision myself, and that's the whole point in life and people is to be able to make conscious, logical decisions. Yeah, and you bring up a good point if. If you didn't have the ability to not love a person, well, then what you're doing is not love. It's just programmed into you. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the negation of the thing exists means that the thing exists, mm -hmm. right? And that is such a, a fascinating and beautiful point that I don't think people think of. We're so ready to look around and say, well, that's evil and that's evil and that's evil. And I say, if evil exists and you know it and you see it, that means that good has to exist. Otherwise, you'd have nothing to compare the evil to. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a great point to to uh, try and express the reasonability of the belief in, in God's existence. There's a book that was one of the top books of this 20th century. It was called Brave New World. Oh, yeah. It was a classic in a world where you could not do wrong. Mm -hmm. And it created a dystopian society where the protagonist, I believe, ultimately committed suicide because yeah. he couldn't live in the inability to be able to make his choices. Right. Yeah. And it, it really comes down, it reminds me of another book, uh, Harrison Bergeron. I don't know. It's a really short mm -hmm. story. Um, but basically that story is about society has evolved, quote unquote, to form uh, basically a social construct where everybody is equal. And so if you were born strong, they put weights on you so you're not as strong anymore. Or if you were born fast, then they put weights on your legs to slow you down. So everyone is the same and they have to hinder people and elevate people. So there's this one scene where they have um, ballet dancers on the screen, but they have all these clunky clothes on and they can't really do a lot of ballet. So everyone's watching the ballet show thinking, this isn't very good at all. But nothing's very good because we've just evened everybody out. And the reason I bring this up is because it shows what happens when mankind tries to dictate what is equal or what is good or what is right. And that's what mankind's been doing since the garden, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they took it on to themselves or we took it on to ourselves to determine what is good and what is evil. But really, we can only play at that, right? We don't actually have any power to determine good and evil. We can only claim it for ourselves in part. Truly, good things have to come from something beyond humanity. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's just decisions that we're all making and disagreeing on. It's just a randomness. Yes. And uh, randomness that's kind of learned a new trick. And, yes. And, and we don't want to be part of that. We want to be able no. to live a life where we do things that are good because we know it's for good. Mm -hmm. We don't do bad things because we know the consequences of it. And I feel like that's one of the purposes of man's life and history is to show what happens when you make wrong choices. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, this has been really great talking to you yeah. uh, today. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to be able to comment on? Um, I guess I would just encourage people not to be afraid of just the discipline of apologetics in general. It, it's, can be, it can be a really overwhelming discipline when you get into it because there is a lot of information out there. And I don't believe that every apologist will believe exactly like you do. So they might be defending something that you don't actually believe in. Um, but don't be afraid of that. It, it's okay. We should be 
solid enough in our understanding of scripture to be able to be challenged without our faith being shaken. And so to me, apologetics is not just a really good point to, or or not just a good study to defend what I believe to people who are aggressive towards me, but also to keep my own self shored up, you know, to keep my own self um, confident in the things and conclusions that I've come to. And if you're not confident, then you're just, you're standing on shaky ground. So it reminds me a lot of what Christ talked about with the house built on sand and the house built on stone. Mm -hmm. God has given us undeniable truths. I mean, as a bedrock for our entire lives and we can accept those and, and we should accept those, but he's also given us incredible reason for trusting in him. And he's given us incredible evidence for not only his existence, but his existence despite suffering or some of the miracles that he did, or his inspiration of scripture. All of these things are, are pillars of our faith. They're not just things that an ethereal being said, well, you should believe this because I say so. He gave us really good reason to obey him and to believe the things that he gave us. So that's really all apologetics is trying to do. It's it's not trying to convert the world. It's not believing that we can play God or we can trick people into conversion. It's just a tool in our belts to show that what we believe is reasonable and rational and that God left us evidence to be able to prove not only to ourselves, but to others, the rationality of his existence and his awesomeness, which is such a blessing. So That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I think that it's nice to be able to have this tool mm-hmm. to be aware of what it is, uh, what it's called, where it came from, and how it can be used and how it can be used to help others. Micah, it's been really great having you on our podcast today. It's been great to be here. This is a lot of fun. Time flew by. (laughs) And Micah, we'll do this again. I feel like we have much more to talk about. Absolutely. Anytime. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for The Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast. Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.